Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. (laughs) Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our Senior Analyst, Pulitzer Prize Finalist, John Brennan. And I'm going to start this week's show by reading a tweet. It comes from Todd Furman, the former odds maker turned sports betting media member, who tweeted on Tuesday, uh, and pardon the adult language here, quote, if you want to blame something for fans acting like assholes at games, point to alcohol, not sports betting. End of tweet. Uh, This was presumably a response to your old pal Woj getting some attention by linking unruly behavior with the rise of legal sports betting. And this is suddenly the hot topic du jour in our business. So, uh, John, let me get your take. Sports betting, alcohol, something else. What's the number one factor behind fans occasionally acting with something less than the utmost decorum? Yeah, I mean, first, yeah, it's true. Uh, Woj is my Birkin record teammate for a number of years, and we teamed up for coverage of too many NBA playoff games to remember, probably at least one Super Bowl. So U.S. Open tennis, PGA Tour golf, that kind of thing, uh, among other things. And I just saw him a month ago or so, and he smiled and just said to me, so gambling, huh? <laughs> and I nodded. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Um, so I may not be fully objective here, but okay. um, I did see the brief clip of him on this, and I'm a little surprised at the level of vitriol. I would agree with the idea that it's a little naive to think that sports fan gamblers five years ago weren't live betting big sums of money and then getting pissed at players who screw up their parlays and yelling at them, you know, courtside. Uh, Of course, a fan can get more interaction with players in mid-competition than probably any other sport. The NBA would be the top, except maybe golf off the top of my head. Um, Now, before the NBA was smart enough from a financial standpoint to stop letting its beat writers sit in front of the front row seats in arenas, I heard plenty of cat calls in the first few rows. I don't recall any complaints though about losing a bet usually it was just like hey so and so you suck you know the generic uh, right. uh, fanboy and alcohol of course that's a factor in some cases but 
I was at a Mets game on Saturday in a lower level. And I got to say, I never saw a beer vendor all game. You had to go back to the concourse to wait in line. So I don't think that's the full answer in a post-COVID, post-cash payment era either. Not sure what they do at arenas nowadays. But now Kyrie Irving for a New York team in Boston after not getting vaccinated in a competitive series is an outlier on so many levels. Right. I'm not taking that situation as a trend toward anything. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that that last piece of the take. Um I obviously have no personal connection to Woj, so uh, I'll uh, feel free to uh, launch in on yeah. him and say that uh, I think he ought to stick to, to breaking news and to <laughs> leaking draft picks 30 seconds before everyone else <laughs> finds out and not try to be hot take guy. I, I don't uh, I, I want to say this hot take thing isn't working for him, but then again, it is getting him attention. So maybe it is working for him, but I think his take uh, sucks. I, I think the the parlay Pats types are the very rare exception, not the rule. And they existed before sports betting was legalized because sports betting existed before it was legalized. Uh, to me, there's no question that of the two factors, alcohol is a bigger factor in bad fan behavior than sports betting. But the biggest factor is and will always be that uh, here comes some more uh, colorful language or at least a uh, repetition of the previous colorful language. Some people act like assholes because they are assholes. And when they were kids, nobody worked hard enough to discourage them from being assholes. Uh, you remember, of course, there was a rash of bad fan behavior right after the peak of the pandemic when fans started returning to arenas and a handful were lashing out. And at the time, it was blamed on the pandemic. People are always looking for something to blame. They're always looking for a reason. And I say the main reason is a lot of people suck. Uh, and and that list of a lot of people, that includes Kyrie Irving. Uh, he, he's handled abusive fan behavior with class equal to those fans. Uh, and as far as I know, he isn't drunk and he doesn't have a bet on the games. So uh, there's, there's my hot take on it all. Let's see if it gets me trending on social media. Uh, yeah, I, I do think that Woj's hot takes... Um, I'm thinking of the word million when I'm trying to figure if uh, it's working or not. I think it's doing okay. <laughs> That's uh, in terms of uh, number of retweets or views or uh, followers. Uh, yeah, let's go. Let's yeah. go with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yes. <laughs> right. A lot, lot of different millions attached to him these yes. days, I guess. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode, not quite a million, but uh, episode number 190 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 189 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. Please be a good non-asshole fan and take a minute to give us a five-star rating. Otherwise, we will definitely flip you the double bird Kyrie style. Well, I, I got to say, now that you mentioned it, I first must add that I tweeted the night of the Irving birds that while I, I can't imagine this clip is available anywhere, or even on YouTube, the greatest version of that, bar none, was performer Derek Coleman in a game that I covered after he got ejected from a game in Seattle in the early 1990s. So DC and Kenny Anderson had just been announced that morning as starters for the NBA All-Star game. The first Nets ever to start in that game, right? Hmm. So Nets coach Chuck Daly, you know, perfect uh, interview subject, right, to explain this. He waxed poetic at the shoot-around that morning about how such a status really uh, kind of puts a player on a whole other level, really changes their status in the league. And then hours later, yeah, it was a rowdy crowd and DC got frustrated and the crowd went wild when he was tossed. <laughs> DC stood near center court, looked around at the frothing of mouths and gave a double salute to each corner of the Seattle crowd. <laughs> nice. Like he was a soldier at the Roman Coliseum. <laughs> Fans loved it as much as you can imagine they would have, having gotten his goat after all, as he next headed to the showers. But I digress. So anyway, coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by our colleague, Mark Saxon, longtime Major League Baseball beat reporter, who writes primarily for our NYOnlineGambling.com site. We're going to ask Mark about baseball futures bets he likes, the state of mobile sports betting in New York, 
and uh, possibly uh, where New York City area casinos locations are going to be. But first, it's been a manageably busy week in the world of gambling, so let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Let's start the news segment with a national story, uh, in fact, an international story, as last Thursday, the American Gaming Association sent a letter to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland calling on the DOJ to crack down on offshore sports books. The letter also goes after illegal, quote unquote, skill game machines. But the main focus is these unregulated online sports books, which the AGA wants the DOJ to investigate and indict. Also, the letter written by AGA President Bill Miller calls on the DOJ to better educate consumers on the differences between legal and illegal operators. This letter from the AGA received a mixed response from the gambling world. A lot of bettors, particularly successful ones whose business hasn't been welcomed at all the regulated books, pointed out that offshore books sometimes give them better odds and don't limit their betting amounts. On the flip side, Miller argued that, quote, These illegal sites enjoy competitive advantages that allow them to offer better odds and promotions and ignore any commitment to responsible gaming because they do not pay state and federal taxes or have comparable regulatory compliance costs and obligations. John, uh, thoughts on both sides of the debate? And is there much chance that Garland, with a slew of high priority items on his desk, springs into action to clamp down on the offshore books? I was starting to think, is LOL still a thing? And I don't think it's been a thing for like 15 years, so probably not. But I'll just say that uh, there are thousands of podcasts out there that have more assignments in mind for Merrick Garland than this. So uh, I'm going to go with a flat no there. Right. Professional bettors make fair points about the frustrating limits placed on them by legal sports books that absolutely drive them back to the offshore sites if they ever even left. It's also true what Miller said. Books in New York are paying 51% tax on their winnings, and the offshore sites pay nothing. So, of course, they offer better odds and rebates and such. I guess I'll settle for if the New York Times, Washington Post and other mainstream media would just stop touting the offshore sites when they want to cite odds in a story for the general public on a sporting event, I'd call that a victory. You know, in many cases, the line is the same. And while the juice or vig might be higher at the legal site, that's not relevant to the non-gambler reader. You just want to explain to them that this team is a touchdown favorite or, you know, this golfer or tennis player is 20 to one, whatever it is like. And you want to cite a source. That's fine. But they're the same. I mean, basically, and in fact, uh, some of these professional bettors point out that some of the legal books copy the offshore line. So mm-hmm. that's true. But the point is, like, why are you selling an offshore illegal site to your your mainstream readers when there are so many legal sites all over the country now that you could cite instead? Yeah, I think the answer to that is that these particular writers, radio hosts, et cetera, don't know the difference and they get those PR emails, which are uh, cleverly done by the offshore books and they don't realize that there's any difference between them. And so that's where the education part, uh, I suppose, comes in. Uh, I'll quickly address the the latter question that I asked you about Garland and the Mm. DOJ's priority levels, because it's the easy one to answer. It's worthy of an LOL. Uh, Not that they can't multitask. You can have multiple cases cooking at once, but, uh, you know, January 6th, uh, holding people accountable for a physical attack on the Capitol. It's bad optics to go after the offshore sports books before you've resolved January 6th. So I'd say uh, the DOJ throwing this letter from the AGA in a pile on the desk and letting it sit there untouched for a while. That's uh, about a minus 2000 favorite. I think that that's where this one's going. Um, as for the content of the letter, I do see both sides. Um, the offshore sports books 
are a problem. They're dangerous to consumers in the sense that your money is less secure than it is with regulated books and you have no legal recourse if you feel you're getting screwed. But the regulated sports books do have a responsibility, in my view, to treat customers well if our goal is to discourage people from using offshore books. I get that they're running a business and they don't want to lose big bets, but that's the price of doing business. You're going to lose some. You'll still come out well ahead in the long run. And so with that said, they really have to stop this limiting betters practice. Mm. Make the limits reasonable and the same for everyone, you know, at least to a point. Um, Like the limit on player props is, say, $500 for everyone. The limit on game lines is, say, $5,000 for everyone. And beyond that, okay, you know, someone wants to bet a million bucks on a game, it gets run up the flagpole, same as it would at a casino. And they should have the right to say yes to Mattress Mac for a million and and no to some sharp pro. But you have to have these baselines, I think, you know, to have these bets where someone tries to get $100 down and it comes back, you can bet $8.43. That's a joke. That's driving reasonable people to bet offshore. And I think the AGA should send a letter to state regulators telling them to clamp down on this practice. I think that's how you marginalize the offshore books and stop giving people excuses to use them. Yeah, I agree with that. And even I think some of the pro sports bettors we know would agree with a lot of what you said in terms of like, if $500 was the absolute, you know, that any better could bet 500 on any game, even a pro, Mm -hmm. you know, they may want to bet a thousand and they can, and they're not thrilled, but it's not terrible, but you're right. This whole, you know, and we've seen any number of these tickets, you know, you can only bet like say $8.43. But like, I mean, come on, give right. me a break. I mean, you're not going to go broke if you let a pro bet $500 a game. They're, how much are you going to lose over the course of a year if that's your limit? Because right. they want to bet a lot more, obviously, and they're playing a lot of books. So, you know, you're you're spreading the uh, the risk there. It's, it's not right. a big number. And that is really it's kind of insulting to these, these pros. So I, I do sympathize with them there, but, but I also, you know, you pointed out too that, yeah, the idea that, you know, why don't they do everything just as well as the offshore books? Well, they got to pay 51% tax in New York. I mean, it's kind of a little bit of a cut to the bottom line, you know, you got to give them a little bit of slack too there. So I, hopefully everybody can kind of be reasonable and think this through and, and we come out with something more sensible than we have now. Yeah. And I'll just note that our colleague Jeff Edelstein wrote a piece for Sports Handle in which mm-hmm. he argued that the AGA needs to add the gamblers, the customers to yeah. the list of entities it advocates for. And I agree with that. It's a good piece. Everyone check it out. Yeah. I think it covers this topic well. And look, this industry, this regulated U.S. industry, it's very much a work in progress. Um, you know, one way or another, though, the, the customers do need to be heard. And in this AGA letter, I think they are looking out for the consumers to an extent, but only to an extent. This definitely looks out more for the casinos and the operators and their businesses. So I think that's something for the whole industry to work on. Yeah. So I'd give the letter kind of an incomplete grade, right? I mean, there's yep, a fair. lot of value to it, but yeah, it didn't get well rounded enough. Should have said, oh, and by the way, also we we point to the legal books. They should uh, increase their minimums across the board, like that kind of thing. That just makes sense. It's good for the consumer. And that's sort of what the letter's trying to push is the idea that let's be good for consumers and that would be good for consumers definitely okay uh our second story focuses on two states in the will they won't they phase with legalizing sports betting we have one state that is getting close and another that definitely isn't happening in 2022 the first of those is maine which listeners who go back to the early days of gamble on will recall maine nearly passed sports betting in 2019 
only to see its bill vetoed by Governor Janet Mills. Well, it's taken another three years, but on Tuesday night, a new bill passed the Maine Senate and will soon head to Mills's desk, and this time she's reportedly expected to sign it. It's an unusual bill, though, as the state's casinos and OTBs will be frozen out of mobile betting, instead only able to offer retail betting, while Maine's four Indian tribes will control all online betting. It's not what certain interests were hoping for, but it does appear Maine is close to passing sports betting legislation. Kentucky, meanwhile, is not close and won't be legalizing the activity this year. Uh, Last Thursday, on the final day of Kentucky's legislative session, a bill that had passed the House in March failed to make it to a floor vote in the Senate. There were different messages coming out of Kentucky as to why it stalled out. Some said it didn't have enough votes of support in the Senate. Others said the Republican Party that has the majority in the Senate blocked it from going to a vote, even though it might have passed. For now, it's on to 2023 when Representative Adam Koenig says he'll introduce sports betting and online gambling legislation once again. John, I imagine you're not surprised by Kentucky. This was the way the wind was blowing the last time we discussed it. But what about Maine suddenly coming together? And any other thoughts on either state's efforts? Yeah, I mean, first, mad props to the Maine tribal lobbyists who pulled this off. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of champagne is being drunk. Some bonuses are being paid. You know, I've been to Maine. Heck, I got engaged in Maine. But even if you, even if you haven't been, any student of geography will know that even if your local casino is only 15 minutes away, which is very unlikely, there's a good chunk of the calendar year where it's hardly worth it to bundle up in the cold and hit the road when you can just log in at your log cabin to one of the tribal mobile betting sites. I mean, right. so that's brilliant. Um, now, Kentucky, it's at a pet peeve of mine. I mean, if one chamber in any state passes a bill of any particular significance, the other one should just vote on the damn thing. Yeah. Although on the historical sports betting front, when passport became law in 1992, there was a one year window given to only New Jersey to approve such gambling in Atlantic City casinos too, like Las Vegas, uh, because believe it or not, it was the only state other than Nevada that back then that had casinos. But it never got to a vote thanks to state house politics and oh wait, maybe if it had been voted on back then, we wouldn't be here today. So I may have to rethink my peeve. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Players uh, playing bingo at, at home. Check off. Uh, John Brennan makes a Kentucky and Maine story about New Jersey. Check it off <laughs> on your bingo card. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, I don't have much to add on Kentucky. This uh, went the way we were told all along it was likely to go. But there is momentum building. I'm somewhat optimistic about that state in 2023. Um, Maine, I have more to say about that because uh, our colleague Bennett Conlon got some interesting quotes there from Stephen Silver, the chair of of the Maine Gambling Control Board. Silver said, the Gambling Control Board's task is regulating the casinos, and we've seen the casinos employ a lot of Mainers, contribute tens of million dollars in taxes, and operate responsibly for all these years through a pandemic and everything else. And now you're going to say, hey, we have this new product that we're really concerned about, how it's going to affect our population, so we're just going to hand it over to entities that have no experience in Maine operating gambling. That doesn't make sense. He continued, we now have a system where casinos are trusted to operate slots and table games, but somehow not mobile sports betting. Uh, So that's the end of his quote. It's a strange bill, and it feels like a situation where, like with the Gambit thing in D.C., people in Maine who want to bet online could end up with an inferior product or products if you don't let the mobile sports books that have experience that offer good promos, et cetera, into the state. Maybe the tribes would partner with those books. I'm not sure. Maybe it's going to end up looking like Connecticut, where there are just a few operators, but they are major operators. They're partnered with the tribes. I think that would be acceptable to the recreational sports bettors in the state, although 
clearly it's far from acceptable to the casinos. I'm curious to see where this goes. And I'm also curious whether it's as sure a thing for the governor's signature as our reporters are hearing it is. Yeah, it is. It is very strange. Like I said, I mean, I've been in state houses where you literally see a lawmaker who's about to go in to maybe vote on some bills and they're pulled aside by a lobbyist who you recognize and they go in a back room somewhere. I mean, they don't have the smoke any smoke filled rooms anymore, but other than that, (laughs) it's, it's right there in the open. Nobody's hiding it. And then suddenly they come out and then they vote a different way and you don't know why, but (laughs) you wonder why. Right. And here, like I said, this is, uh, this is strange. And, um, it's true, too, about the casinos, because most states do recognize that the they put in hundreds of millions of dollars in investment, uh, construction jobs for you know job years, and then also continuing employment for hundreds or thousands of people. Uh, and then the idea that like, well, you know, we're going to stick it to them. Uh, that's not a good look. So, um, yeah, this, I, yeah, this main governor is a little mercurial, it seems like. So yes. that will be interesting. I don't know what kind of line you can get on her not signing it, but that would be interesting. Yeah, if she if she vetoes another one, that would be that'd be pretty wild. A riot riots in Maine among the sports betting community if that happens, I think. All right. For our final story this week, let's look at handle and revenue numbers as several major and minor sports betting states reported March figures over the past week. And they were huge across the board, certainly up from February's numbers everywhere. Some smaller states came in with big numbers, such as Connecticut, Louisiana, and Tennessee. But let's focus on the three big states that have reported so far, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. In your state, New Jersey, the big headline was that sports betting handle broke $1 billion again after just barely missing the mark in February for the first time since last August. And revenue was very strong, $66.4 million, more than double the $30.9 million in February. Online casino in New Jersey set a new single month revenue record at $140.7 million, about $3 million more than the previous record that was established in January. In Pennsylvania, the books bounced back from what was, for some, a losing February, generating $715 million in handle in March and $48.5 million in revenue. Online casino generated a state record $118.1 million, and total gaming revenue combining brick and mortar and online was the highest in the state's history at $462.7 million. The story was similar in Michigan, which also saw some sports books lose money in February. In March, handle was $451.6 million. Revenue after promotional payouts was $14.7 million. And while sports betting numbers in Michigan trail those in Pennsylvania, online casino numbers do not. Michigan's total online casino revenue for March was $131.7 million, just $9 million bucks behind New Jersey. John, what numbers and trends stand out to you here? Wow, I had missed that huge Michigan online casino number. That's amazing. Uh, not the first one that's amazing to me, but you know, New Jersey had about a seven-year head start. And for the first several years, the numbers in online casino were pretty modest, in large part because the average consumer didn't even know that you could bet that way legally. Mm-hmm. Yet Michigan hit the ground running and continues to thrive. I imagine it's really effective marketing there, but it's still impressive. So now this is three states you talked about that likely will settle in at more than $100 million in monthly online casino revenue from here to eternity, right? Yeah. Now, will it be enough to awaken lawmakers? in like the 40-something other states? I suspect not for a variety of reasons that I can't quite comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I know that the betting handle numbers get the headlines, um, but they aren't as meaningful, of course, as revenue numbers and tax revenue numbers. And uh, yeah, like you, my focus here is going toward 
the online casino stuff, the difference in revenue between online casino and sports betting and how slow states continue to be to legalize and regulate online casino. Um, adding up these three big states, the three biggest online casino states, March online casino revenue in the three states combined was $390 million. And March sports betting revenue was about $128 million. So online casino revenue was triple sports betting revenue. That's the big story to me. And it's good and bad, of course. You know, online casino makes businesses money and it generates taxes. It also is costly to customers. Uh, so, you know, both pro and con, but it really warrants more mainstream coverage. I'm not quite sure why people aren't picking up as much on the angle that, wow, online casino, that's where the money is. Yeah, I mean, I've been told and I believe it, you know, you're talking about about very old, often over 70 years old, white men who know sports. They like sports. They understand the concept of betting on a game. Maybe they had a book in the neighborhood like I did. Maybe they didn't, but um, they kind of get it. And like online casino, don't you have to go to a casino to play the game? Like they literally don't understand it. I mean, I know some pretty prominent lawmakers. I've seen them with flip phones in 2022. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, they're not really, really up to speed on what's going on there. And that's the people who vote. And uh, look, it's, it's sort of a for another podcast, but the number of really, really old people who are in charge of things is probably not a great idea. Right. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. We're two weeks into the baseball season, and we've barely talked any baseball in 2022 on Gamble On, so let's remedy that. Our guest this week was a Major League Baseball beat reporter from 1998 to 2021, writing everywhere from The Athletic and ESPN.com to the Orange County Register and Oakland Tribune. A few months ago, he joined the starting lineup at U.S. Bets, where he's primarily covering gambling news in the state of New York for NYOnlineGambling.com, but he is also our resident MLB expert. He is Mark Saxon. Mark, welcome to Gamble On. Eric, good to see you. John, nice to see you and hear you. Um, and let me just say about joining that lineup, it is a star-studded lineup at, at Better Collective. And, and two of the gentlemen I'm on with right now are right there at the top for me. <laughs> thank you. Oh, well, thank you. We appreciate that. All right. So I don't know exactly where we fall in the lineup, but but not the eight and nine hole hitters, I think you're saying. We'll, we'll take that. Well, given the current company, no, you're, you guys are two, three for me. Okay, good. I like that. Um, so uh, as long as we're talking about baseball a little bit here, let, let's start there. We will want to get your insights on the latest news out of New York as well later in the conversation. But let's start with some baseball topics. It's early in the season. Um, after the delayed start, teams have played about 10 to 12 games apiece. Certainly too early to draw any big conclusions. But is there any team or player that's really surprising you so far? Um, and also looking at the latest title odds, if you had to put a hundred bucks on someone to win the world series, who looks like the best value to you? Yeah. In terms of like the, I think the surprise is at this point, you know, you, we've got our usual sort of array of young guys who people didn't, weren't maybe that top prospect that we hadn't been reading about in the minor leagues or were kind of tearing it up. You'd look at Stephen Kwan in Cleveland, Owen Miller in Cleveland, Seiya Suzuki, who of course had played in Japan and been a star over there, but he's tearing it up for the Cubs early. So those are, you know, in terms of like these rookie phenoms, those are some guys that are exciting. But for me, 
one of the real surprises, and I, I would think that um, this podcast, a lot of the uh, listeners would be from the East Coast or from the Eastern Seaboard. The Yankees offense just, to me, is surprisingly unproductive. If you look at the names in there, you look at last year, and I'm really into this stat, WRC+. Plus. I think it's as good a measurement of sort of batter's box offense as there is in baseball. The Yankees were like, I think, 1% above league average the last year. And the trend has really continued into this season. I just don't, I find it incredibly surprising that when you look at all those names and most of the guys were healthy last year between Judge and Stanton and Rizzo when he came over. So for that group to not score more runs to me is just really astonishing. Um, And I loved your question about if I had a hundred dollars to put on one team to win the title, because I think I, you know, I'm going to go across to Illinois and wager this at some point. And if I were people listening to this, I would run to do this. I think it's the White Sox. Hmm. I think they haven't even begun to show the kind of team that they are. If I like to look at like StatCast statistics, sort of the numbers behind the numbers, and they have a very high strikeout pitching staff, which works very well in the postseason. They have a great lineup. We've seen the power and all those other things. And furthermore, like they're in a terrible division. So you don't even really have to worry about them making the playoffs. And that's sort of half the battle right there. So I, for me, it's the White Sox. Absolutely. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at some of the odds boards now. It looks like the highest price on the White Sox is FanDuel has them at plus 1200. So that's, that strikes you as pretty good value. 12 to I one. I think that's pretty good value when you look at talent. Now, if you're one of these people who's a big believer in experience in the postseason, and you know, those guys didn't go as far. I'm not personally, I think usually the, the, the biggest collection of talent usually goes the furthest. And, and w- one last quickie on the, well, uh, on baseball here, as you mentioned a couple of times, uh, players in Cleveland. I'm wondering how you're doing with breaking the habit of calling the Cleveland team by its old name. Have you started referring to them as the Guardians uh, out loud and in your mind at this point, or, or do you slip up a lot? It's funny you say that because I haven't had to like talk about them that much. <laughs> right. Researching this, it did, it does still look weird to me. Yeah, yeah I got to be honest. But hey, you roll with the times. It was the right thing to do, but it's still weird. I still don't quite get it. You're naming a team after a couple statues on a bridge. I I don't know, but maybe that's me. Yeah, Uh, yeah, Mark, I got to tell you, uh, for you and anybody who, uh, if they are not Yankee fans, uh, get checking in on WFAN Radio in New York is uh, uh, scintillating these days. Neither <laughs> Mets are off to a great start, but Yankee fans are a little bit, I don't know, spoiled, can you say, at the last 25 years? So they are jumping off the cliffs. Not that uh, sports fan talk radio is, is representative of the population, but uh, there are a lot of nervous Yankee fans. But I actually want to slip to the NL Central, uh, yeah. your, your neck of the woods, because uh, I only made two wagers in the preseason on uh, the Gamble on podcast, and they're both in the NL Central. One is the Brewers winning the division. I don't like any of the other teams in a division, almost like you mentioned with the White Sox. And then the other is uh, the Cardinals under 84 and a half wins. Now, they're off to a pretty good start, but they haven't really uh, had to use a fifth starter. I don't think they have a fifth starter. And I don't know about their bullpen either. So uh, which of those do you like better? Which do you think I'm a loser on with the Brewers win a division and Cardinals under 84 and a half? Far be it for me ever to use a term like that. (laughs) Uh, But I think you're on to something with this division. Again, I think, I think the centrals are the weakest divisions in baseball. Um, what you have in the NL central, 
the Cardinals tend to sort of slumber when the Cubs aren't really that good. And we're in one of those phases right now, right? They're not really motivated to go out and spend that extra dollar to get the next guy. I would say in terms of the Brewers and the Cardinals, I haven't really made up my mind yet. I think it's going to be one of those two. And they're really polar opposites of each other. That Brewers team is absolutely loaded with pitching. The starting pitching is, if not for the Dodgers, would be the best in potentially the best in baseball. I really think that. Um, I know Freddie Peralta hasn't quite been as good this year as he was last year, but that is a tremendous pitching rotation and it's a tremendous bullpen. The Cardinals are the opposite. I think they're going to score a lot of runs this year. I think last year, Nolan Arenado's first year here, I think it's natural to expect him to have a somewhat down year. He's been tearing it up, but I do question their, their starting pitching depth. How much longer is Adam Wainwright going to realize that he's, you know, or not realize that he's 40 years old and he's not supposed to be pitching this well. So I think I do. I don't dislike your bet. I just think that that number 84, 85 is kind of where it should be for the Cardinals. But I do understand why you would sort of fade them. And I really like that Brewers bet that you made. All right, let's shift to New York regulation. Um, You've covered the launches of the nine mobile sports books in the state. And you've written about Senator Joseph Adabo's efforts to increase the number of mobile operators. Where does that stand? Um, and with the monthly handle numbers kind of settling in now after that yeah. record shattering start, is there a feeling now that maybe nine operators in New York is plenty? Yeah, it's funny you say that because that, you know, after this initial interest in expanding to, they would have gotten to 16 operators in New York by next January. That would have not only would that have led to more diversity in the in the market, it would have lowered the tax rate, which has gotten a lot of publicity, as you guys know, because we've done a lot of the publicizing. (laughs) (laughs) That 51 percent rate is tied for the highest in the country. It would come down to 36 percent under those parameters. But to answer your question, it's essentially frozen. It didn't make this budget. So it's not going to be a discussion for 2022. It could get revisited next year. But what happened is. I think you've got a lot, a lot of lawmakers going, wait, we've made $175 million in taxes already since January 8th when this thing launched. Why would we tamper with that? What exactly isn't working about it? And so I think that's why it's sort of retrenched. Um, so really, in terms of gambling right now in New York, the, the thing that's on the table is these three downstate casinos. Everything else for now appears to be frozen. And that includes, by the way, a story we just put up at NIAG, New York Online Gambling. Uh, They're not going to be expanding the menu, I don't think, this year as well. Um, A lot of the things they do, and John will know this better than me, are basically to keep New Jersey from stealing their uh, gambling revenue. And so what they're going to try and do is have as many options on the menu as New Jersey has right now. They have a very limited option. You can't bet on New York teams in New York. You can't bet on anything that requires voting like MVP, you know, the race for the NBA MVP, NHL, whatever. You can't bet on that in New York. They want to expand that. But I I found out today that's off off the uh, docket as well for 2022, it looks like. Right. And to clarify what you just said about betting on New York teams, it's the college teams specifically that you can't bet on in New York. But the the thing about the awards voting, I didn't even know that until I I read your article. As far as I know, New York might be the only state doing that. The like Oscars voting and stuff, uh, Oscars bets and things like that. A lot of states, including my state, Pennsylvania, don't have that. But to be able to bet on MVP, Cy Young, things like that, 
I didn't realize that, that you can't do that in New York. And that's kind of interesting uh, that it seems like from your article, it sort of stemmed from the fact that New York is kind of a media capital or is a media capital and, and people voting on the awards live in the state and they wanted to kind of be careful with that. Is that's kind of where it came from? Yeah. And you can see why, you know, any regulator would be a little or any sports book even would be a little concerned about those types of things. In many of these cases, you know, think about Super Bowl MVP. How much action did that get? You know, and John, you've been, you know, I, I, maybe you have Eric too. You've been in press boxes, you know, in, in these events when they hand out the MVP ballot. Yeah. And you, you got like 20 minutes on deadline to get it in. You're, scra- you know, you're, you're scrambling to look at the stats and put it. You know, there are some issues that it raises. And I could see why states would want to do that. But again, they don't want to, you know, not have things that are being offered right across the river in New Jersey. They'll, they'll come see John. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the one thing that makes me laugh about fans is the idea, you know, who was that Super Bowl MVP? The idea that the writers that are making the votes care at all is comical. You know, often, like at a Super Bowl, there's eight minutes left in the game and it's tied up and you're handed a ballot. You got to vote for the MVP of the game at, at that point. And yeah. then uh, you better do that hard, in, a, in a hurry because you're going to want to get in the elevators. So you're down by the locker rooms by the time the game ends and you're, you're watching the game actually on the ground floor. Writers don't care about that. So that's kind of nutty. But uh, I want to focus, as you mentioned already, the three New York State casino licenses. They're going to be in the New York City area issued by the end of the year. And um, it's a foregone conclusion, I think, that Aqueduct Raceway and um, uh, Yonkers Raceway uh, are each going to get uh, a casino license. They're racinos now. They have slot machines and nothing else, basically. And they're going to be full-fledged casinos. Leaves one license. And I haven't found anybody who is willing to make a strong claim that I know where the third one's going to be. And I'm speculating wildly on kind of central Long Island because there's uh, it's an affluent market. It's big enough. You can get far enough out from Queens. You know, I'm from sleepy Rockland County on the New Jersey border, and there's no chance they would ever put a casino there. Not enough people live there. It's a very historic uh, area. They don't they don't want it. And um, Manhattan, there's a lot of political opposition. The Bronx, I think, is too close to Yonkers. Brooklyn, I guess, maybe. But so do you have any feel for where this third license is going to go? Yeah, so you're 100 percent right. It just makes sense that the two racinos would get first look. For one thing, they've cleared all the community you know, re- uh, regulations. Yeah. Um, they've. You know, in the case of Aqueduct, they already have a hotel there. So that's a huge advantage. In Yonkers, they're promising to build a hotel or a convention center, which is what they want. But you're right. I think, I think first of all, the most exciting possibility is obviously Manhattan, right? But once they, if there is too much political opposition in Manhattan, and they've already decided, okay, we're not going to worry about the tourist dollar, Right. Because let's be honest, the vast majority of tourists in New York are in Manhattan. So once they decide that, I don't know that there's a huge difference between some outer part of a borough and Long Island, as you said. So my my feeling from talking to people about that is that it's really going to be a competitive bidding process. But the competition is really going to be for only one out of the three. So you could really see that one heat up and get interesting. And I think that's good for the state because it's going to force these operators to really step forward with their best foot and come up with a really cool um, possibility for New York. And I think that potentially makes the casino better, but I do agree to you with you. It's sort of trending away from Manhattan. And if that's the case, then, you know, all of these kind of things are in play. And I think, I think it's going to be hotly contested. I really do. 
Yeah, I think the smartest thing, and I don't think this is going to happen, but it would be, you know, in New Jersey about five or six years ago, there was a proposal. There's a country club, a very ex exclusive private club on the Hudson River. And the idea was that they would build a high end casino, you know, 100 grand a year dues or whatever, just for the swells, the one percenters, the whole thing. And the idea is they would, you know, stay at the Four Seasons, say in Manhattan on the west side, take a, fair, a private ferry over. They land there. New Jersey people wouldn't even know it was there. It's so it's so far out of it. And um, so you make a ton of money because it's really wealthy people betting a lot of money. And I think Manhattan could do that. Then you're not going to have uh, massive tourism. The average Joe isn't going there. Um, the dues are so high. It keeps out everybody but the the one percenters. And, uh, you know, that might not be a thrilling idea to some people, but I think from a revenue standpoint, I think that would be the best thing. And it also wouldn't really create the traffic problems and all the other claims that, you know, people are going to be worried about, or it's going to, uh, it's going to attract undesirables. Although some people might, might say my idea is doing just that, but I think that's what they should do, but I, I don't think it's going to happen. Oh, that's interesting. So almost like a high rollers casino. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Manhattan. Very interesting. Yeah. That probably is a way it could work. I just wonder whether, you know, these politicos, when they get involved, they're going to want something a little bigger that offers more jobs. But that's a really intriguing concept that you came up with. All right. Well, you mentioning uh, undesirables, John, that <laughs> makes me makes me wonder which is the more interesting list, the, the starting lineup of the U.S. bed staff or how many of us fall on the list of uh, undesirables? I don't know. That's a, a debate for another time, I suppose. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if I joined the podcast, you know, maybe we could just call it the undesirable. Oh, there you go. That's not bad. <laughs> All right, let's workshop that. But I, I think that, yeah. has, uh, that has legs. It's been great talking to you, Mark. Thanks for uh, making your uh, debut here on Gamble On. I'll let our listeners know that they can follow you on Twitter at Mark A. Saxon and find your writing uh, mostly at nyonlinegambling.com, but also sprinkled about at Sports Handle, U.S. Bets, all the other sites. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. And let it, let, thanks for letting me uh, ramble on about NIAG because I, I do think we're kind of building a, a really cool site over there. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Let's update our betting bankroll. And, you know, we just can't seem to have one of those weeks where both of us deliver big. Uh, this week, you brought your A game, John, but I unfortunately did not. We'll get my bad news out of the way first. Uh, two boxing bets, both losers. Spence versus Ugas was minus 220 to go the distance, but Ugas suffered a fractured orbital bone. The eye was swelling badly. The fight was stopped in the 10th. We lose $88 on that. And I took Butaev over Stanyonis in basically a coin flip fight. It went the distance and Stanyonis won a split decision. That's a loss of another $105. On the flip side, John, you went two for two on golf bets. Uh, Lowry top 20 at even money was a comfortable winner. We profit $50 there. And Connor's top 20 at plus 120 also hit for a bankroll boost of $84. So John was plus $134 on the week. I was minus $193. That works out to a loss of $59. On the bright side, my big $250 bet on Joey Gallo's home run under is off to the best start imaginable. He might be playing triple A ball in another couple yeah. weeks. Uh, but alas, we're a long way from cashing that one. Uh, and our NBA futures are looking spotty in part because of injuries. <sighs> For now, we're down by $3,492. 
we also have $1,055 on hold in those mostly spotty futures bets, uh, leaving us with a paltry $5,453 to bet with this week. And you're up first, John. Yeah, so I went back to my core competency. and It looked like I had two easy winners before Connors had a few hiccups on Sunday. Still got the job done. Lowry actually had a two-shot lead in the back nine, and thank God I didn't bet him to win because he hit a chip shot right near the green, across the green, into the water. Mm. <laughs> that was that was for a double bogey. That was brutal, but you know, easy win for us there. So this week's the only two-man team event on the PGA Tour all year, and it's in New Orleans. Uh, so the trick is figuring out which team – are going to catch up on some nightlife and do some hit and giggle and which teams badly want to win. And here I spot a couple of teams I like for top 20. One is M and on specifically Sungjae Im and Ben on the South Korean duo. The pairing is M has plenty of status on the tour, but a high finish for the team could really help out his buddy on and M never seems to mail in a week as the tour's busiest player. So 50 units on M and on at even money for top 20. The other one's a similar scenario. Gamble on favorite Will Zalatoris is a chance to let his teammate Davis Riley kind of reach new heights in tour status. Plus, Riley's flying just under the radar, but he's an up-and-comer. So let's go 50 more units and once again at even money. Okay. Hit and giggle. I don't think I've ever heard that one before. Yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of a lot of amateur golf tournaments are kind of that way where, you know, you just show up and, you know, you're barely keeping score. It's just, uh, you know, there there are beer cart ladies involved and it's all kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> all right, good. I'm, le- I'm learning the golf lingo. <laughs> um, so the heavyweight championship of the boxing world is on the line Saturday in jolly old England. Uh, so, you know, I'm betting that it's the champ Tyson Fury against challenger Dillian White. And my bet here offers a strong argument in favor of having accounts at multiple books at line shopping. I'm quite confident that Fury, who is about a minus 550 to minus 600 favorite, will win. But I'm not going to lay that big price, even though I do think it has value. I think he's certainly more likely to win by knockout than by decision. Most books have Fury by KO, TKO, or DQ at about minus 135 or minus 140, which is decent value. Uh, Foxbet actually has an odds boost to plus 100, even money, but you can only bet $20 on it, and we don't do odds boosts for our bankroll. They kind of feel like a cheat. Um, So I'm actually getting even more specific on the result. I think it's much more likely the KO comes in the second half of the fight than the first. And here's where line shopping led me to our bet. Fury by KO in rounds 7 through 12 is about plus 150 at most books. But I kept looking around just to check, make sure I was getting the right price. And I saw that it's plus 240 at points bet. So I saw that and I'm pouncing on it. That's great value to me. Doesn't mean we're going to win the bet. But as long as I think that's the result more than 29.4% of the time, it's a bet we ought to make. So we're making it $40 to win $96. Fury by KO, TKO, or DQ in round seven through 12. Sounds good. And uh, USFL, yeah. My preseason champion pick of the Philadelphia Stars opened last week to a 23-17 loss of the New Orleans Breakers. I'd like to see if I learned any, anything from the week one results. Okay. And let's face it, the main reason that try for this league is for gamblers. Uh, speaking of which, I was not impressed by the Houston gamblers last week. They survived a 17-12 win with a defensive touchdown and in spite of a score in the second half against the Michigan Panthers. So I'm willing to go 50, yet again at even money, with the hometown Birmingham Stallions while I give the three and a half points. Okay. For my uh, second bet, I'm turning to the NBA's Thursday night playoff slate. And again, line shopping helps at least a little bit. 
I looked at the lines Wednesday night, and the one that jumped out was Golden State minus one and a half at Denver. I just think the Warriors are clicking. They have the Nuggets number. The talent disparity has been undeniable. It's a team with four stars plus role players against a team with one star plus role players. And that one star isn't a great two-way player, even if he is almost certain to be named MVP of the league in the coming days. Denver isn't appreciably better at home than on the road. I thought maybe that would be the case that I should be hesitant to bet the Warriors, but uh, looked up their, the records. It's pretty much the same for Denver home and road splits. I just don't see them turning this series around tonight, nor do betters who have moved this line from one and a half to two or two and a half at most books. But BetMGM still had it at one and a half as of Thursday morning. That was the only one that did. So we'll grab that. And then the point total. It's 224 or 224 and a half at some books, but I found a few that have it at 223 and a half. So far, the two games in this series have featured 230 and 232 points. This line seems a hair low. So let's take that lower number, 223 and a half, and go over and root for points. And uh, I'm not going to get crazy and parlay my two bets. Let's <laughs> keep them separate and just do a half unit on each. $55 to win 50 on Warriors minus one and a half and $55 to win 50 on the game over 223 and a half points. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening, and thanks again to our guest, Mark Saxon. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan, and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling, and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. So this one's about serendipity. You know, I have 10 nephews and nieces, all of whom are millennials, uh, born in a seven year span of the 80s and 90s, which was a kind of a busy time for everybody but me. I didn't have any of them. so. Uh, <laughs> but I'm familiar with the fact then that most, if not all of them, don't have cable TV. They pick the subscription services they like, the programs they already know they like, and that's that. That's what they watch. So what they don't do much of was what us old timers call channel surfing. Mm. And thanks to that, they don't stumble onto many programs they didn't know they cared about. Well, it happened to me Wednesday night as I caught the very beginning of an old but epic 30 for 30 documentary on ESPN2 about Marcus Dupree, mm. aptly titled The Greatest That Never Was. And if you're under 40, I don't think you ever heard of Marcus Dupree. But, <laughs> um, my initial interest was drawn because of the recent uh, NIL, they call it name image likeness that people see headlines on. There are deals being cut by so many college athletes these days, coincidentally in large part because of an ex-Nets player whose short-lived NBA career I covered named Ed O'Bannon. But this was the 1980s, and the nation's greatest high school running back from the once infamous town of Philadelphia, Mississippi, wasn't supposed to get any money at all. Gee, no potential nefarious gambling issues there, right? Now, the story takes several different turns from that, though, both fortunately and unfortunately. But I already have noted that the Stars lost their opener to the New Orleans Breakers, who also were an original USFL team. And I was a little amazed to see that Dupree signed with those original Breakers on March 3rd, 1984. Well, only because it was leap day, but I remember that Mardi Gras that year was February 29th, and that I was in New Orleans for the days before and after it. Uh, another coincidence, I still have a coin around here somewhere that I snagged during one of the debaucheries, I mean parades, that week that entitled me to a free ticket to any Breakers game at the Superdome. I left town on March 2nd, so I missed Dupree by only one day. That's a lot of coincidences and one possibly overlong anecdote, Eric. <laughs> and if not for channel surfing, I'd never have found a documentary I didn't even know that I would want to see. So for those uh, very specific on their viewing choices, it's a little bit of food for thought, maybe. And with that, until next time, gamble on.